Oh really? <laughs> yeah, and I'll come back to that. But okay. uh, 2002, that song. Why and how does, how it, does make it make me feel now? Nostalgic, actually. And I, I, I went back to listening to it again because there's so many versions. And I thought, okay, which version do I pick up for you? Because there's short versions, big versions, and there's like uh, versions with like soul singers doing it at once. And then I thought this was the bare bones live one, which is good. Uh, but how does it make me feel for 2002? I think that was um, my transition when I moved back here from the US in 2000. And um, I mean, I was heavy into Zappa anyway, from the 90s till then, big influence. But in correlation to that year, I just felt there's so many things going on in Dubai at that time. Actually, there was not much going on in Dubai at that time, during 2000, 2002, but I was recording an album, uh, Abstract Collision, in the meantime of Tomorrow. That was the first release I did here. And um, that song, it was, see, life is like theater. I look at it this way somehow. Do you know what I mean? I don't know if, if I'm blabbing on, just shut me up. I'll be quiet. It's not a problem. But I always looked at things in a very theatrical way. Even the way I live is like, okay, we can have the humor, the seriousness, and the musicality for it. And oh no, that song... Because Zappa is such a theatrical composer in many different ways, and I always looked at it in a very visual and audible way. And, and 2002 was like the tipping point. Look, this was 20 years back, man, so I'm really trying to recall as much as I can, you know. Um, I think musically I was doing that record, which is my first one I've written and, and done, and it, it had all kinds of elements because I was confused when I got back in some way in Dubai that time, 2002. Confused in what sense? I was living a great life in, in the U.S., doing a lot of music, being around a lot of creatives. And there's so many venues and avenues to walk through and in and out. Then I came to Dubai. I, you know, after eight, nine years being there, you have to replant your seed kind of, you know, although I grew up here, born and raised in Dubai. But it was different at the time. I think you've seen the change as well from that. So there was a big change, that gap, the 90s. There was that starting to change here. Uh, I'm trying to get to a point. <laughs> Just bear with me for a second. So um, 
with that being said, it it was very theatrical because there was some kind of energy that was coming in in 2002 in a creative musical way. Uh, this is before I got to know you, and there was a stagnant part uh, of it that was happening at the same time. So, oh no, I can't believe it, you know. Da, 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 da. I'm, I'm not really into the words. I don't really, I'm not, the words are not the meaningful part, but it's the musical aspect of it, which I translate into my own thing. And that's what it was. It was like, you have this balance in this song where it goes theatrical and unpredictable, but at the same time, very sweet with a beautiful melody on top. So maybe that's what rounds up 2002 because I released the record in 2003 or end of 2002. And that was like a kind of an epiphany of what I need to be doing. And this song is kind of like that, represents that. I know this was so, the worst analogy, but I tried. So that record was Abstract Collision? Yeah, the first record I did, Abstract Collision, uh, in the meantime. Who were you recording on. with? Where were you recording? What, where were you playing? What was Dubai like, if you can recall back in that year? Uh, that year, I, I started doing shows with brothers and friends of mine, like uh, Praveen Muki, who's a mm -hmm. great drummer at that time. Okay. And then, well, can I go back through the story to get to how the recording was, how I got to meet sure. new people here? Because that's what kind of it's about, isn't it? So... In 2000, during the, those two years, I used to go to uh, Music Master and Tower Records in Dubai. Do you remember when they were around? And music I don't Ma remember Music Master. Where was that? That was, uh, that was in uh, City Center, Dera. Okay. Right? I think it was Music, that was what it was called, but it was, I think, represented from Music Master. So Music Master had a, a, a listening section where you, back in the mm -hmm. day used to buy CDs and records. You know, That's finals right. weren't as popular by CDs. So the only way to go and check out new music is you go to the, the music shops and they were nice enough there that they had a room. A lot of the jazz and the world stuff was in there and the outside department had all the pop, the, the usual commercial, you know, the, the regular stuff that they sold. But the jazz section, uh, it was always quiet and they had listening station, they had a big collection. So I'd always go there and check out different records, you know, what's on, what's on. We didn't have streaming, we, we couldn't discover, that's how you discovered music, right? So that time, I was in the shop and I was a bit bummed up because I couldn't find the same kind of people who are into the same kind of thing I was in, you know, just because I wasn't exposed to the right people. And one day I was in that shop and I was, I remember I was looking at a Charlie Hunter record. I don't know if you know who he is. Of course. He, yeah, he was, he was fantastic. So he had a, I've seen him live and I love this stuff and he's got a new record out and I was looking at it. And there's one guy in that shop and usually there's nobody in there. It's just usually me and I spend hours in there. And there was a guy next to me and he was checking out Mahavishnu Orchestra or something like that. I think it was like that, or I remember it clearly. And it was Andre Segon, who was the bass player on the Abstract Collision Records. Wow. And it was funny. I was like standing there and I'm looking at him like, okay, what's this guy doing? Because you feel a bit, you know, somebody invaded your private space, but really it isn't. You were kids, you know, arrogant, like, yeah, I know this shit, you know, blah, blah, blah. So I, I, I looked and I looked at him, he looked at me. And we're both, I, it felt like he's in the same boat. So I, I told him, you like this kind of music? And he's like, yeah. And you like, I'm like, yeah, totally. I'm like, I'm a, are you a musician? I'm like, yeah, I'm a bass player. I'm like, sweet. And you like, you know, we started talking about music for a couple of hours in there listening to this. And he's a big avid music listener. So he's like, have you heard this song? Have you heard this song? We stayed there until they kicked us out. So it was a really good thing. So during this time, um, Praveen Muki, who uh, 
you know, it was a brother, I, you know, he's a friend and a very close friend and a brother. We were jamming. We had a, a, an outfit called Moist Luscious, which I put together, you know, again, off of the Zappa thing. Um, and uh, we started doing some little shows here and there and be writing some really funky, weird stuff with Prav. And we had a bass player and I, I completely forgot his name. He was just there for a year. And Preetham, Praveen's brother, was on guitar. It was all instrumental, weird stuff. I was trying to get horns in. So we did some of that. That was that was fun. And then when I met Andre, uh, we just gelled completely together. There was this jams, uh, open night jams at the bunker. I don't know if you remember the bunker behind Al-Kawaka building. That was the setting stone for all the live musicians in, in Dubai. We got there, I think it was on a Thursday night, right after work. We bring our amps and blah, blah, blah. And everybody would jam out there. And it was such a great vibe in that venue because what did we all it look got like? to... How many people? What was the... So it's a health club. The bunker was a health club behind Kawak. It was a sports club that happened to have a bar and a venue, you know. It was it was a good, decent size. So it fit in about maybe a good 200 people inside. And then there was an outdoor area with a pool and stuff like that. But nobody cared. Everybody loved live music. And it was very carefree. So you just go up and jam. It wasn't coordinated properly. But a lot of the musos in Dubai who were hungry for live music came there and got to know other musicians. So this is how I got Andre. Like, I don't know how I found out about it. Somehow I found out about it. I saw Andre there and I was telling Prav, let's go and have a jam over there. So he, he comes down, jumps on the kit. Andre's there and a bunch of other guys were there. There's Mo Kamal, who's a fantastic singer, who's on, on the Abstract Collision record as well. And we just started jamming and then you know, because it was such a tiny community that we all got to know each other and we'd meet each other in different spots where there's jam nights, example. This was 2000 till 2003, maybe, or something like that, right? And um, and then me and Andre, Andre and I, uh, and Prav, we had this obscure way of thinking of writing music. I always wanted to go the abstract way, you know, like, let's go out there, let's see what we can do, you know? I don't know what I'm doing, but let's do it, <laughs> you know? And we did. And it was, it was fine. The synergy with Andre and Prav, we just clicked somehow. It was weird because we had that same obscure way of thinking from music. And then we put out the record, uh, Abstract Collision, in the meantime of tomorrow, which has got some strange shit in it, man. Like, I look back into it and listen, like, what the hell was I thinking? You know, you're still growing as a musician or as an artist and you just develop it. And uh, But, you know, the other day someone brought it up and I, I went back to listen to it. I'm thinking, what the hell? But there's some really weird and cool moments in there, really genuine moments, um, which we miss sometimes today. So coming back to the Frank Zappa, oh no, that kind of like, that song kind of represents that vibe. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Did I even answer your question? <laughs> you did, you did. And, and this is, this is a, a, a winding and free form. And if you, if you like abstract a conversation that we're going to be having today, Um I love the fact that you told that story of meeting Andre in a record store uh, or in a music store, because that's something that musicians all around the world are going to relate to instantly. That's where so many bands are formed and bonds are, are, are started. In fact, in some ways, Samir, the director and myself can root the true beginning of our friendship to also um, randomly bumping into each other. Uh, in a record store in London, oh, we both lived there. So there's a nice uh, kind of symmetry there. Not, what store did you guys, what, what store did you go, you know, get your music from? 
Well, this was a store, if, I, if memory serves, called Reckless Records in uh, Angel uh, uh, in North London. Uh, so a lot of a lot of secondhand yeah. vinyl, and um, and we were both at the Masters at Work, uh, both big house heads at the time uh, section. So um, so there's a nice symmetry there. So I want to go back. Asad and I want to kind of use this Frank Zappa as a as a as a thread to pull on, and I want to understand how a kid who was born and bred in Dubai ended up becoming such a, a, a fan and so influenced by somebody like Frank Zappa. So tell me a little bit about your childhood and maybe even pre-childhood. Like give, set the Set the scene a little bit in terms of what kind of household, who your parents were, how they came to Dubai, and then what it was like growing up in Dubai for you. Okay, so I mean, I'll just I I was born and raised in Dubai, so and where I grew up, funny enough, uh, do you remember Chicago Beach Hotel? Of course, right? It's come up in a few of these podcasts. Oh, has it? And uh -huh. this is my home. That was my home. Now, I, I, how it came about that in in '75, my parents moved out to Dubai from Lebanon from to escape the war, and they were living in Ajman or Sharjah. I can't remember for a couple of years because that's where it was happening at that time, right? That's right. And then I was I was born shortly after that, and in '79, my mom and dad got an offer to work in Chicago Beach Hotel. So they moved all the way down there. And do you remember down there, Chicago Beach Hotel was so far away. That was like, you need a visa to go there, you know, because everything was happening around Bar Dubai, Dera area. You know, that, that was the, the melting pot, let's call it. And Chicago Beach was way far further out. So we were actually the first residents in Chicago Beach Hotel as a family. We stayed in the chalets, but my dad worked in the engineering department and my mom was uh, the secretary to the general manager over there. So I grew up in the chalets for the first few years, and then we moved to the staff accommodation at that time. Now, it was it was interesting, why? Because when, you know, as a kid and your imagination wonders a lot, right? And I was on the beach all day long, every day, you know, uh, this is pre-childhood, like six, seven, going into the desert, you know, finding, and I used to love animals a lot, so I want to be a zoologist, funny enough, because I just love animals. And going, you discover snakes, and there was camels around in the parking area, which come in. It was just wild, right? But it was beautiful. It was very simple. And um, my father is an artist, so he's always been an artist. He's a painter. We always had a studio in the house where he'd paint, and he'd constantly paint and, and do his work um, when he's off work and coming in. And my parents were working most of the time. Um, so I was always really left by myself. I had a a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful nanny who raised me, you know? And I really owe a lot to her for music. Her name was Lakshmi Ranasinghe. She passed on a few years ago and she raised me as her own. She spoke perfect English. She was an orphan from Sri Lanka, right? And she, she got me a lot into the Motown. That's how it started because she always had James Brown, Earth, Wind & Fire playing around since I was a kid. Wow. Uh, you know, Boney M, all of that stuff. So it kind of resonated in me, and I'd always like bop to it and stuff like that. And she loved like the Jeffersons, uh, Bill Cosby show. She like she knew a lot about that. It's not your normal, you know. And and I always had dogs, so she always showed me how to be kind, and and it, it all kind of culminates together. So 
that started happening and I just fell in love with the guitar and how 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 I knew about the music thing is one day on TV randomly in Dubai they put a Kiss concert on Kiss wow I like, yeah I was like four or five I can't remember some somewhere there and I looked at it and, you know they had the whole makeup on and stuff like that and it freaked me out it was like but this is so cool it freaked me out I hid behind the couch and then Lakshmi just like this is music you know they're doing live performance like what is all that makeup I thought they were devils and whatnot it's like no this is it and then they were rocking out and the crowd was going nuts and stuff I was like wow this is awesome you know what I mean and at that moment for some reason I knew like I wanted to be involved in this I needed to do something with this you know in parallel the James Brown still playing the Motown still playing but I was trying to discover other stuff so um when that was happening I was much of a loner when I was a kid I was always around doing my own thing just in my own imagination tinkering why is that because a lot of my friends would be living in Dera and Bar Dubai area and all of that during those first few years and nobody would come down so I'd meet him in school and all of this stuff so you have to create that imagination you had until a few years after then I started having neighbors from all kinds of countries and you know how it is in Dubai that's the special thing you know getting Europeans Asians uh, whatever all around you and you grew up with that vibe it's like oh cool this is the world this is how the world is now the reason why that's I brought the that magic, up the magic of the right place. yeah and these people who came in like I remember I had a lot of german neighbors um you know her parents worked in the hotel or or what not and i grew up with them and a lot of english neighbors but the reason why i'm bringing the english and german is because they brought something from their country that i learned and and tagged along with you know on both ends of the spectrum and um so you're always curious as a kid like you know what's out there especially being in dubai in the desert and beach it's bare minimum you only have the tv to really uh gather up any thoughts of of what there is over here but there's something special anyway so a big of big learning curve i guess in the creative output or or cultural was from all my friends and neighbors who grew up around the neighborhood you know we picked up information from them so it was like imagine it's like traveling but not traveling they're just around you does that make sense absolutely you know? and also i mean you touched on so many different things there but that era and especially in dubai where you say what we had was tv but if uh, memory uh, serves tv only started at 4 p.m. right yeah, and so that's right. And, and so there was one english channel right <laughs> channel 33 uh, exactly yeah. and so uh when you see a kiss concert as a kid or or when when some german neighbor is introducing you to something it's yeah. kind of a big deal you know yeah. because there isn't really that much to take in so i could just picture you hiding behind the sofa seeing that kind of life changing kiss concert you know uh, as a life changing event right which is kind of what it was in terms of the uh, the 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 sort of um, the media diet that we had in those days yep. also as i you know i think it's such a beautiful thing that you mentioned lakshmi um first i've heard of her and it's beautiful to kind of honor her here in this conversation as somebody with such a peace. a profound impact on your life rest in peace and that's something that's kind of interesting about growing up in dubai right where uh i think it's very common for people of a certain socioeconomic class the middle class and and certainly you know um anyone uh, with more means than that to have 
uh, sort of live-in help. Yep. Yeah. Um, often from Sri Lanka or the Philippines. Uh, correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But they, it's a very intimate bond that actually gets formed. And I think that's also uh, a theme that we pick up on where we really do feel raised. Uh, a lot of folks do feel that that's kind of part of the extended family and you're raised by your parents as well as, as, well as yeah. kind of important figures yeah. in, our, in, our, in our lives. But, but you know, in that subject, you have thinking about it, like the working hours and our parents needed to kind of do that because if you remember the working hours of, you know, the, uh, the general working hours, like you start work at eight or nine or something like that and you finish at one. And that time I, my parents used to come back home at one and sleep for two hours or whatever till four and restart work again from back. four till nine. And, you know, so, and my parents were always busy because hotel business, you know, you don't realize how hectic it is. So they were part of that. And so they were gone most of the time. So they needed someone to, to help. And Absolutely. it was, it was interesting how those working hours worked out then. And remember the shops used to close as well during those hours, That's right. reopen, <laughs> you know? I wonder where they got that from. I don't know if there was another culture that had that because usually the European is is a nine to five kind of thing, isn't it? But we picked up on maybe on I think, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, there are parts of Europe, right? Like Southern Europe, maybe they have more of that siesta uh, kind of mentality. And of course, this a lot of it was pre air conditioned Dubai, where you, you, <laughs> I mean, you kind of had to close the shops right? almost between noon and, and four, especially oh, in yeah. the summer. That's right. Um, that's right. Yeah, but of course, it is interesting that economics play a big part of it. I mean, it's a quite similar story to my upbringing where both my parents worked because they had to work to, you know, make enough money. And because um, of the kind of way, wage differential of, of all of these folks coming in from different parts of the world, uh, you know, even a Lebanese or, a, or an Egyptian family that were coming in um, in some kind of middle income bracket, uh, they were both both parents would be working and they would have enough money to then have a Sri Lankan yeah. know, live and maid helping yeah. out. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I loved her so, so much. Her name, her name was Lucky. So that's that was her thing. And I re she was very dear to my heart, even to my brother as well. So when she was with beautiful. us for 15 years, you know, it was quite a period of time. And then she retired and went back. Go, sorry, go on. So I want to kind of pick that thread back up in terms of... Because Frank Zappa is quite out there, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. And so I want to kind of come back to the creative uh, childhood of you and understand how lucky your parents, TV, Kiss, All keep of that. us going. How do we get to... How do we end up with okay. Frank Zappa? So, you know, I'm going to build up from like at the age of nine. This is when I started... Uh, I can't remember when Headbangers Ball came out. Do you remember what year that was? It was like mid-80s, maybe? I'm actually reading a book called I Want My MTV Right Now yeah. about MTV, and they're just talking about when Headbangers uh, came, came out. But uh, yeah, I, I guess it would have been our mid-teens. Mid maybe, yeah. Actually, before that, I jumped at scale. How I started getting into music, because I loved music from the start. And my dad would have had a reel to reel in the house and a vinyl and a vinyl deck. And, you know, they'd have parties at the house. They'd put in the usual disco, the Um Kulthum, the Abdel Halim, you know, the Arabic stuff, which was beautiful stuff. I didn't appreciate it till later on in life, obviously, you know, but they also had, uh, you know, the Elvis, this and that. But I was more drawn into the Motown from Lucky, a lot of that. 
So what happened was, you know, when you're a kid and you want to rebel, you're a tough guy, blah, blah, blah. I started going into metal or, or rock, you know. And how we discovered music, you got to remember this. Thompson original motherfucking thing. Of course. Of and course. That's, that's how I discovered a lot of music. Because you go into the shop, there were seven Durham tapes. I don't know if you remember the price, but of course. And they they'd have the Thompson original, and I'd buy I'd buy records or, or tapes according to the cover because I couldn't open up and, and hear it. So mm -hmm. like all my uh, my pocket money would go on buying cassettes and listening to them. And I had this measly old Walkman which I had to break in and out just to be able to play it. And anyway. So I'd go into the shops and I'd keep buying tapes. I've bought so many different kinds of music uh, throughout those years just because of the cover. And I started discovering music randomly more, you know. And from there, I started liking like bands like Anthrax and, and uh, Megadeth. And, and then you had the hair band, the Motley Crue's and all of this stuff. And the Michael Jackson. I was always a fan of Michael Jackson anyway. You know, I'm a huge fan. Prince uh, that time. So I always had this, that, that, that's how I kind of discovered, like always the tape shops. And then friends in school, would, you know, we'd start passing on tapes to each other, you know, or record them or copy them when we had two decks, we'd record one to the other, or somebody would make a mixtape. That was fun. Um, and then even to a point, I, I got to a point where I have two cassette machines and I'd play them with speak two different ones. And for some reason, I was like, I play a song and then I want to go into the next one because I, you know, into a different song. So I played from a different tape machine. Like, let's say I'm playing something from James Brown and then I want to go into Nirvana, you know, I'll be playing that. So funny enough, at that time, I, we were, I was kind of already like, not I'm, not, I'm not a DJ, but it was kind of a pseudo DJ thing because I wanted to, you know, cue up the next track. And then what I also do when I was a kid, um, also that time I started uh, taking piano lessons from this great Polish teacher. I wasn't interested in piano. I just wanted guitar, you know, but my parents wouldn't have me have that because at that moment as well, I was heavy into skateboarding. So I'd skate, 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 and I failed a year because of it. But, and then I got a guitar, my dad wouldn't allow it because like this kid is not gonna study, take it away. So it's like, you can take piano lessons, like fine, anything, you know, whatever. So I'd start learning these rock tunes on piano. I know I'm jumping back and forth because it was always during this time. Uh, so that kind of happened. I lost train of thought. Why did I jump into to that? Um, yeah, and, and just really friends and us. I'm like, did you hear this? Did you hear that? Same kind of thing, isn't it? You know, and then you start finding your circle of friends who like this kind of music or who like this kind of music, who like this kind of music. But I remember at the age of 11, I discovered Hendrix. Mm. And, you know, I know it's a cliche. Everybody's like, Hendrix this, but, but Hendrix, man. I was like, what the hell is this? You know what I mean? So, uh, how did you discover him? Do you remember? It was also by like, you know, I'd heard, I've heard Just his a random. Name. Yeah, yeah. I've heard his name is like Jimi Hendrix, Jimi Hendrix. And then I bought, I think it was Electric Ladyland or Axis Boulder's Love was the first tape I got. I can't remember. It's the one with Voodoo. No, not, didn't have Voodoo Child on it. Well, one of them. I can't, and I, it's been a while, so I can't yeah, remember. Yeah. And then, you know, you know, I just realized we need to kind of translate a little bit as we go for folks who are not as familiar with Dubai. So just to back up a little bit, Chicago Beach Village is what is now um, Medina Jumeirah and that whole yeah. kind of huge Medinat complex. 
Tame's originals were these bootleg tapes, which is you couldn't get original um, cassette tapes, no. uh, as far as I, I recall. Yeah. All you could get were these bootleg tapes. I think uh, Thompson bootleg. Originals and Tame's Originals, I think, were the two brands, but Thompson right. was the one that dominated, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. And Music Master um, was his distributor for that. Oh, no, right. maybe they weren't. Maybe they were. I can't remember. Until they went legit by buying original, getting original tapes, which were right, in there. Right. So I was like, shit, I could buy two <laughs> albums for that. So how do we copy sure. that off? <laughs> sure, sure. And that whole thing is re reflective of how Dubai was also emerging as kind of a more serious, cleaned up, organized, official place, yeah, right? Whereas true. in the early days, it was, I mean, complete, it was just a, fr a real frontier town. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... And then, interestingly, skating has come up quite a lot in these podcasts and these interviews that we're doing as a, kind of a big influence. And um, I guess rock music, to a certain extent, has as well. And uh, my sense, I wonder if you agree with me, is that although there was a, a real mix of cultures, like you mentioned, of people all over the world, there was also quite a dominant kind of white, British culture that was almost kind of um if you think about the folks programming channel 33 or dubai 92 fm or uh, publishing uh the gulf news or what's on they were all pretty much white english yeah. men i would exactly. guess right for the true. most part true channel 33 and, you had uh, what's his name uh richard, uh, richard Coram. Yeah. you know he Rest passed on like a few yeah, years ago yeah, yeah 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 anyway go on yeah um so so did it did does that resonate with you? Does that, did, did you feel kind of similar? And in, in a way, um, like it's interesting that Lucky was introducing you to kind of black Motown music at home, but what was the dominant youth culture at the time when you guys were going playing at the bunker? Was it more kind of white rock or was it more mixed up than that? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I mean, the bunker was later on when I when I came back, but during those younger years, it depends who was the crowd you're hanging out with, really. So, you know, if you were with a rock metal crowd, you're listening to rock metal, and that's all I listened to. But, you know, at home, you go and listen to a bit of James Brown just to take the edge off, you know. And about when you're in the scene, you're like that. So I think it's... And then the girls loved... You know, that time, what was it? Uh, like Backstreet Boys, what were they called? New kids on the block. New kids on the block. That's yeah. it. That, that's it. When that shit came out, I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know? Yeah. So there's that scene as well. There's the Madonna yeah. scene. There's all, I mean, yeah. it's all over, but. Which speaks was... to MTV's power as well, I guess, yeah. at the time, yeah. right? Yeah. As such a, uh, it sounds like you got MTV quite early. Yeah. Compared I to mean, some other folks. I mean, I mean, yeah, when it came out, there was, there before MTV, when I was growing up as a kid, there was a great show. It was an English show. I think it was called Top of the Pops, or I can't remember what it was, but it was before MTV came out. They'd have, like, different... And then there was another one that they used to play on Channel 33, is kids, uh, you know, performing the latest Top 40 hits. It was an English one. I can't remember what mm. it was. Do you remember that? And no, there was a song from Madness that used to come out, Welcome to the House of... Uh -huh. da, 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 da. And these kids would be performing it, and they put it as a video live. And that was a big thing as well, even before that. I was like, wow, this is awesome. What's going on here, you know? And then I think all built up to MTV. I can't get my, my, my dates right, but... Yeah, yeah, of course. It's a while ago. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. take us back to the path to Frank Zappa. So you discover Hendrix. You're probably around 11 or whatever. Yeah. 
Frank Zappa I discovered in the U.S. when I moved to the okay. U.S. And I moved to the U.S. when I was 16 years old. So okay. before that, musically, I discovered, you know, the Chili Peppers, Rage Against the Machine. I was a huge fan, you know, the Soundgarden uh, and all that stuff during, you know, the aggressive teenage, I'm a tough guy kind of years, you know, and yeah. still great music. And then when I went to the U.S., I managed to buy my first guitar. So see, during this period, my, my, my dad wouldn't let me have a guitar because he knew I was going to take away from my studies. So a very close friend of mine I grew up with named Rashid, um, we, he played piano and we used to go into the Chicago Beach Sports Center gymnasium and jam there. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. And he had a guitar and he gave me that guitar, right? It was an old beat up thing. So I would hide it in another friend's place every time I wanted to play it. So that was kind of the thing. Um, Anyway, so because of Rashid gave me the first guitar pseudo, which I gave back to him eventually, I started, you know, I just wanted to do music and I wanted to study music. I don't want to go study marketing. But of course, I couldn't tell my parents that because I got oh, this guy's going to go to the US and fuck us off. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to go study business or marketing. I had no interest in it. I get to the US. When I was 16. I was in Boston the first year. And then I met some friends over there. Uh, well, I made some friends, and we we created the first punk rock band. I got into punk, they got me into punk rock. I'm like, sweet, what's this stuff, you know? It's got a lot of energy, it's rebellious, I love it, let's go. And Pat Burke, who we're still good friends to this day, he's from Boston. We started uh, uh, a band called, uh, what was it, Pregnant Nuns. We were called the Pregnant Nuns, <laughs> you know, being crazy and shit like that. So that was the culmination of that. And throughout that year in Boston, I went into that punk rock phase, you know, I'm, I'm discovering different kinds of music. Then I moved to Minneapolis a year after that. Minneapolis, we all know that's where Prince is from. So when I was in Minneapolis, I was still into that rocky stuff and the punk and all of this stuff. And then I went to a cafe called the Loring Cafe. That Loring Cafe, I don't think it exists anymore, but this was a really cool cafe in a park and had the stage. And they always had these avant-garde, jazz acts over there it could be just avant-garde jazz or it could be something funky or you know it was just a free open creative spot that happened to have a coffee shop people love to hang out and we'd have beat poets go up on the tables and you know recite stuff and and then one day i i discovered this trio who were playing this free form of jazz remember i was about 17 17 and a half 18 something like that and i was mesmerized I'm like what is this fucking music this is fucking crazy man that's when I got into the Miles Davis stuff. Frank Zappa mm. thing came in later, right? Mm -hmm. And then I started going to CD shops, and there was a, a record shop called Electric Fetus in Minneapolis. And they had the used vinyl, you know, the same kind of thing what you went through. So I was there all the time. At the same time, I'm practicing and playing and, you know, you know, doing my, my work. And then in Electric Fetus, they had, like, a really out there section, like, more than anything, and which I loved. Mm. And they had used CDs and used vinyl and... and cassettes and stuff like that so um during my you know the jab listening to miles listening to coltrane listening to parker listening to monk and and anything out there that's fusion and then i i always knew who frank zappa was but i never heard the music so one day i go back and i had this flatmate and i just moved into this flat during that time and he was a big music listener and he had these boxes of frank zappa cds and he's, I was like, hey, man, can I play? So he's like, don't, he never let me touch his Frank Zappa CD. Wow. Other, other CDs, yeah. So I'm like, there must be something, of course, being the rebel. So he'd leave the house and I'd pick them out and I'd play him. 
there was like, you can't do that on stage, Hot Rats and all these albums. And I'd listen, in the beginning, it's like, what's going on, you know? And I'd start laughing because this music is very humorous, right? And then I'd hear the intricacies and then you get into it, you get into it, you get into it, like, whoa, man, this guy's put everything together in one place. And then he came back. I forgot my flatmate's name, to be honest with you. I was like, man, this is amazing. So we geeked out on Frank for that time. And obviously in parallel, listening to all kinds of other music and just discovering, just absorbing as much as I can, you know, just for the sake of to play, to perform, to compose. That's my big thing. Why I became a musician, because I want to compose and write and create music, you know, and learn my tools to be able to do that. So these were part of the tool set, is listening to a lot of music. And Frank Zappa, for me, just put everything together in some way, which I kind of envisioned it, you know? Um, so that's how I discovered Frank and, you know, never stopped, you know, and every time I'd read something and not only his music, but his persona and character and what an incredible human being he was. He non-stopped work. He built everything by himself. And I love that ethos that he did it all and he loved it. That's all he did. And that inspired me the most. So hence why I'm kind of doing a lot of, you know, trying to, live up to i can't live up to his name that guy's g um you know just trying to do what he's doing is like i want to do this too you know so that's the gist well, of there's the a whole lot of, thing i feel like there's a lot of uh preparatory kind of work or kind of journeying that takes place before somebody comes to to frank zappa and is really hit with somebody like frank zappa and so i want to go back a little bit to the childhood and the household and uh, the piano lessons which which schools did you go to i when when i was in dubai we went i went to greenfield college and uh, of okay. course that wasn't in existence so what happened green they shut down greenfield college and the owners created two schools which is dubai international school and al mawakib school i don't know okay. if you know them right so of course yeah all the kids were in greenfield international i think greenfield or greenfield college that's what it's called it was in oud metha next to jess Okay. You remember? Yeah, that's where it was. Of course. And uh, so obviously the management was like, okay, you can take your kids to this school, to that school. So I ended up in Dubai International School. So that's where I went to school and I graduated. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and it was uh, like, uh, what, what kind of, tell me about the school, like what kind of nationalities, what were the other kids like? Was it a fun school? Did you have a good time there? To be honest with you, my childhood, really, my memories are a lot in Chicago Beach Hotel and Chicago Beach Village. I did have some friends okay. in school, definitely. Uh, there was very few like-minded people I went to. There, there were some good people, but my, my actual friends or my growing up or my influences weren't from that school. They were from my surrounding neighbors, let's say, growing up. Uh, the school was all right. I just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I hated school, to be honest with you. I never really liked school, so, you know. So what was what was your community like? It was more based on Chicago Beach Village? Yeah, Chicago Beach Hotel. How were you Chicago meeting Beach people? Village. What kind of people? Well, they all went to different schools, different... Like, how, how I met people was through skateboarding at that time. So, you know, Chicago Beach Where Village had this... Skate? In Chicago Beach Village, the skate bowl. Do you remember the bowl with the two spines in it? So we used to dominate that thing. I remember when they first... Before, I obviously knew before they built it, and then they built it. I was like, wow, this is awesome. So I used to go build my own ramps. So I'd go into my dad's maintenance shop and I'd try to build ramps by myself so I could skate on it. It was always a flop, but <laughs> you know, whatever. And then they built that ramp and a lot of the skaters would come over there. And skaters equal music, equal rebellion, equal let's go, you know. 
And that, that's what it was all about. So, like, I wanted to be, like, the cool kids, you know. I dress up, put a bandana on, whatever, and sometimes I look like ass or stupid, you know. You're just trying to discover what you do, you know. You want to... It's like... Uh, you're a creative and you understand you are a creative outlet where you cannot get it out within your tools or medium. There's other ways or forms. You try to get your creative uh, persona out somehow. Say, look, look at me. I'm also creative like you, you know, in, in a, in a, in a very uh, vain way, but it's not, but that's just as a kid discovering yourself, you know, Oh, I'm going to wear Quicksilver board shorts today. You know, like none of that other stuff. Or I'm going to rip this off. You know, there's a fashion statement as well. It wasn't only that. It's of course. Like how you represent yourself, you know, yeah. which I don't care about the now. Tribes, the yeah, tribalism that, that comes along with it. You know, and uh, you get your ass kicked so many times. You know, this is part of life, you know. You know it's, so that's how, how was your relationship with your parents? So your father was an artist. It sounds like they would host uh, parties at home with disco music and Um Kalthum. Tell us yeah, more about yeah. that household growing up. Uh, to be honest with you, because my parents were always working and I was such a, I mean, it, we didn't have the closest relationship, my parents and I. You know, my dad w was always out and about. I hardly saw him because he was always working or painting or doing other stuff. And so was my mom. My mom would come, you know, she's young as well. So she loved to spend time with uh, her neighbors and uh, and I was I was always rebellious anyway. I was I was a pain in the ass when I was a kid. I mean, God bless them. To be honest with you, how much shit they put up with me. I was always getting into trouble, so there was always that distance. You know what I mean? I think that's where the are they now? Uh, my mom is still in Dubai. My dad's retired. He's back in in Lebanon. Okay. So yeah. So they had a kind of a classic Dubai story of did they come intending to spend decades or what was that? No, it was the short thing, you know, but they loved it here. This is home for them, you know, my, my dad, especially when he moved back to Lebanon, he's thinking the old country and blah, blah. he's like, man, I miss Dubai. And, you know, mm. what, what did I do? <laughs> you know, but he's <laughs> out in nature. So he's acclimated to it. My mom, you know, she's in retirement uh, stage at this moment. And she, she doesn't know if she wants to go back or not because it's become home, you know. Of course. Over 40 years of living here yeah. and uh, you know, what do they do? So, yeah. Okay, so I learned a little bit about your influences, your path to Frank Zappa growing up. Um, I guess what it was like being in Dubai as a creative kid. Uh, then you went to the U.S. age 16, which seems young. Uh, was that something that everybody was doing in Dubai? Was that common? What took you there? And what did tell us about your U.S. years? So at six, I graduated high school at 16 on the turn over to 17, like at that age. So uh, I graduated young. And the year I graduated, like within a month, I was already applying for colleges. And in all honesty, I wanted to get out. I wanted to leave. I wanted to discover new places. You know, that was my thing. Why? So that, huh? Because Why? what else, you know, got limited here in Dubai at that time, you know, and I wanted to do music really. And in my own cheeky way, it's like, yeah, send me to the US, I could learn some more, <laughs> you know, and that's what I did really, you know, and um, there, what was your question again? <laughs> the US, what was it? Well, I just, yeah, your US years, right? Like why you graduated early, then you applied and then... Uh, I guess Dubai was just still pretty small and provincial at the time, right? Yeah. And for somebody in that moment and exploring creativity, probably, I mean, it, it must have felt a little limiting. So you were excited to go to the US? Yeah. Yeah, I was. I was super excited. I got there. I was like, you know, this is where the land of music. Let's go. You know, and I, and I get there. It was a bit of a culture shock in the beginning 
What was interesting, you know, Shihab, we grew up in Dubai with a multicultural melting pot. So we yeah. kind of knew about the world indirectly without us knowing about the world directly. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Absolutely. So when I got to Boston, I went to a, a, a Quincy College, which was out in Quincy. And it was a one-year thing. I my un- The reason why I went to Boston is my uncle, he's been living in the U.S. forever, and his kids are there. He lived in Boston. And um, he told my old man, like, I'll take care of him for a year. So I stayed with him, but I was in, in college at that time. And um, uh, the, the interesting part is, you know, I wanted to make friends with everybody. So in that college, we had, you know, African-Americans, the Caucasians, the Asians, the whatever. And I'd like, yeah, okay, cool. Like hanging out with everybody, getting to know my feet. You're 16. You don't know what you want yet. You know, I started becoming friends with different groups and I was trying to get them, get these groups together. You know, groups of my friends were from different ethnicities. Ah, let's go hang out, blah, blah, blah. And I didn't realize that, I know this is cliche again, but like after six months, like these guys wouldn't come together. And deep inside, there was that racial thing, which I couldn't understand because I grew up in Dubai, you know, thinking about it. And then I figured it out. I'm like, okay, this is life. What do you do? Right. Other things, obviously, uh, more, the hospitality is definitely different. So there was another culture shock, you know, from us, from the Arab world. We're very hospitable people, generous. We like to help, you know, uh, uh, there's that kindness there was very different so i'll give you like a little story example so pat who's a good friend of mine now you know it's been over 25 years he invites his house bear in mind i was 17 we were kids at that time coming from arab families when you go into someone's house or parents house you're shy you know you behave nicely and politely yes auntie blah 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 all of this stuff you know what i mean so you're courteous this is how we grew up and i like that i like that very much actually it's respectful it's all that and i went to his house and he had his room down in the basement and I was like, cool. So I was sitting there and he was having a cold drink. He was having a cold beer, actually, you know, we're underage drinking and shit. So at that time I was like, uh, Pat, can I have one of those? You know, it's been like an hour. It's hot. It was summertime. Like, can I have one of those? He's like, yeah, sure. Just go up to the kitchen and get it. So for, for a Middle Eastern kid to go up into someone's house who I've never been into, and to go to the kitchen, you have to walk through the living room and go around. And I remember that. And you go to the kitchen. Who was sitting in his living room and I was not introduced to were his parents sitting there watching TV. So I'm this little shit kid, you know, from Dubai coming up, you know, being very shy. And like, I'm trying to cross the living room like, uh, hi, you know, because I wasn't given a proper introduction to them. And you know how that, that thing is. Hi, I'm Pat's friend. And they both looked at me and like, yeah, whatever, basically. Um can I go to the kitchen? They looked at me, yeah, they pointed where the kitchen is. I'm like, cool. And these guys are hardcore Bostonians, you know, from, from down south of Boston, right? So I go into the kitchen and I open the fridge. Like, you don't go into someone's house and just open their fridge randomly. You know what I mean? I open the fridge and I'm drinking beer on top of this. So in my head, they didn't care that his kid's drinking beer, but I do. Like, if I get caught, I'm screwed, you know, like underage. I grab a beer, I put it on my shirt, and I woke out and I had a Pepsi can on, in my other hand just to kind of hide that I got something. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I walk through and I like pace myself through the living room, go down. I, was, I tell Pat, I'm like, listen, man, next time I want a beer, you go get it for me. I'm in your house. <laughs> blah, 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 what the fuck? And he looked at me strangely, but it's not part of their culture. And he's like, why did you have a Pepsi can with you? I was like, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want your parents to see me carrying a beer. I was like, it's all good. I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> You know, that's like a little culture shock thing like that. And then yeah. another culture shock is 
I was 17 or, or somewhere that I was still in Boston and I liked this girl in college, right? And she's really cute. I was like, let's go out on a date. I was like, okay, pick me up at this house, whatever it is. So I go to her house and this, this kid opens the door. He was like three or four years old, something like that. And uh, I was like, hey, how you doing? You know, I forgot her name too. <laughs> and is your, you know, sister here or something like that? And she come out. I'm like, your brother's really cute. He's a nice guy. I know that's my son. And that was another culture shock because at our age to have kids, you get what I mean? Yeah. Even though how much you're exposed, that was like, whoa, this sure. girl's like 17, 18, and she's got a four-year-old kid, you know? Mm. And that was like... I didn't know what to do in that situation. Obviously, I was a horny little teenager. I was like, do whatever, you know, just let's go. <laughs> so that's a culture thing. You get used to it and you, you learn how all this stuff goes. But, you know. But we were in a little uh, innocent bubble to a certain extent in Dubai, right? But I, I love that thing that you brought up about uh, it, it matches my experience as well. You really grow up blind to color, ethnic, ethnicity differences, religious differences in Dubai because literally you're just every every other kid in your school, every other kid in your neighborhood is from a different Country. place. And you're going around having sleepovers at all sorts of different cultures and different people. And so it is quite a shock. Um, even now, honestly, I still see the difference in terms of how I kind of move through the world compared to... Uh, other folks who didn't have that Dubai childhood experience. Yeah, it's true. Like we, it's it's a special way the way we grew up, because I mean, you've traveled the world and I've traveled the world. I got to manage to do that, and you see, like, wow, we we grew up in a very special case here. We were first yeah. generation uh, Dubai kids, if you really think about it. From our our school, we are the first expat generation kids, and uh, it's a very interesting demeanor of how. We got into it that way, you know? So the U.S., tell me. So you got to Boston, then you went to Minneapolis. And so what, you went to another college in Minneapolis? Yeah, I went to another college there? university there. It was called, uh, okay. yeah, over there. And then the music was ongoing like fire at that time. So I was just, at that time, even in Boston, I'd be banging on musicians' doors or people, anybody who played music, I'd annoy the fuck out of them, you know, on their phone. We didn't have cell phones or pages. It was just phone or go knock on their door. Yep. And I used to annoy him. Uh, I used to go to Berkeley School of Music and just watch all the musicians coming in and out. Amazing. You know, and, and there was there was a shop called Daddy's Junkie Music in front of Berkeley. That's where I bought my uh -huh. first actual used guitar. It was a hundred and twenty dollar Ibanez uh -huh. guitar. Didn't know how to restring it properly. All of this, so I would, like talk to people there just to you know not feel stupid. It's sort of, I felt like they're all so pro. You know, they're going to college for music. Wow, that's amazing. I wish I was there, but I couldn't be there. So I'd be asking these kids or these musicians in the shop, like, you know, they'd be practicing, like, oh, what's this? What's this? What's this? And I'd, like to a point, they kicked me out of the shop a couple of times. Just, you know, I wanted to learn. He was like, you know, there's this, and they always tell me there's this school. Why don't you go to the school? I was like, what do I tell them? My parents wouldn't allow me or I can't afford it, whatever it is. So that would go on for a bit. And whoever, like, there's a, a guy I met in Boston who got me into the blues. So there was that switch from to the blues to discover the blues and he was this seven foot tall dude right from boston but you know what's funny shihab he spoke perfect arabic and i couldn't wow. understand where this guy came from and like and he was this big massive guy and he had this really interesting story like he's very reserved so i think 
I don't know he was a kind of an undercover guy or whatnot because he was a lot mm-hmm. older as well. He was like four or five years older at that time. So he's in his 20s. And I remember him telling me that he was in Canada and worked with a, a shop that had Lebanese people in, and he learned Arabic. But he spoke Fusha, not Lebanese. You know what I mean? Mm. And obviously, you know, when a white person speaks Arabic, you know that they're white, but he spoke fluently and he'd always practice. Uh-huh. So he was in my college. I think his name was Peter. I can't remember. He was a really lovely guy. Um, and I'd walk with him. I'd feel really safe because he's a big motherfucker, you know, and he loved the blues and guitar. So that's obviously how we connected. So I remember I'd go to his house and like, teach me what you got. And he'd teach me the, you know, 12 bar blues, one, four, five form, the shuffle and all of this. And his guitar was always everywhere in pristine condition. If I touched his guitar, I had to wash my hands before because he didn't want to rust out the strings. So every time I had to do it was a pain in the ass. You know, he was very strict about it. I'm not going to fuck around with a seven-foot-tall guy, you know what I mean? So I washed my hands and go play. And then it was very kind, though. He'd show me a lot of cool stuff. And I washed my hands again. He had this thing. But he spoke Arabic. Until this day, I'm trying to figure out why and where and what does he know about why. You get what I mean? So that was an interesting little thing I had over there. I just, I just remembered that now. So he was the culprit of... So you... Of the blues. Yeah, of the blues, right. And and I guess you were becoming a guitar player at this time. Yeah, I was. I was just... That guitar was my thing, you know. Drums is a, a huge love of mine. So when I was growing up as well, I wanted drums play with sticks and stuff. But, you know, tell my parents, they said no guitar and tell them drums. Get the fuck out of here. But growing up, funny enough... My mom's best friend was Egyptian. She was like my second mom as well, somehow. So every time she came back from Egypt, she'd get me a tabla. And I always had tablas mm. and pots and pans at home and I'd be banging nice. on them and, and stuff like that. So that was fun. You know, I'd always mess around with that stuff. So Minneapolis, uh, this this is where you met the seven-foot guy? Or that was no, Boston? this was in Boston, still in Boston. Okay, so this, that's Boston, kind of introduction to blues, then Minneapolis. Tell me more about your kind of creative coming of age in America. Yeah, so Minneapolis... The- and the rest of your life in America. It was eight years you said you spent yeah. there, right? Uh, Minneapolis, I had... Uh, I was in this university, and uh, I met a guy called Kirby who loved Kurt Cobain. He looked like Kurt Cobain as well. And, you know, he got me into that grunge stuff. And I was like, okay, this is cool. Nirvana, he was obsessed with Nirvana to a point that, you know, he wanted to be fucking Kurt Cobain, <laughs> right? And through him... I got to know uh, some of the international students and other students. And some of the international students were these Bangladeshi international students. These guys, I, I saw them play like a live gig in the university. And they were shredders, man. They were like, all that stuff. Of course, when you're young, you're impressed with that stuff. And of course, I became friends with them. Till this day, we're still good friends. And it turns out that these guys came from Bangladesh they were in super famous rock bands. I did have like crowds of ten to 14,000 people, right? Because it's Bangladesh. Wow. So it was a band called Rock Strata and War Phase, and they were all into the technical stuff and all that. So we became friends, and I, I really clamped down on them to teach me a lot of stuff. That happened. At the same time, in parallel, I was very drawn to jazz musicians as well, or the blues at that time I was discovering. So the time in Minneapolis, this is where it gets more interesting. Um, the first year, this is how it kind of went down. And then after that first year in Minneapolis is when I discovered Loring Cafe. Loring Cafe discovered the jazz, went into it. And I was just buying CDs and listening and listening and doing a lot of listening and trying to transcribe and learn and meeting other musicians and whatnot. 
Then one day I was in a bar and I had a I, I fell in love with Miles at that time. So I had a I bought a Miles Davis T-shirt, you know the one with the uh, he's just sitting there looking birth of the cool T-shirt. I don't know. Anyway, so I was in a, I was in a bar. I was wasted as fuck and I was peeing in one of the urinals. And next to me there was this guy with a kind of not a top hat but like you know the Mambo Number no. Five hat and stuff like that, and he was drunk, and he was like, "Hey man," I was like. What's up? It's like, where do you think all this piss is going? And I was drunk. I was like, you got to recycle it back and we're going to drink it again. <laughs> he starts laughing like that. So he's got that Mambo number five voice, you know? Right? And then he looked at my teacher. He's like, you like Miles? I'm like, yeah, I love Miles. All right, let's talk. So I get to the bar and he turns out, he's, he's as old as our parents at that time. And his name was Batume, Gary Gingery. That's his real name. And turns out he's a big pro jazz drummer, Right? Wow. So I was in the bar getting wasted with this guy. And next thing you know, this guy takes me under his wing. He was an alcoholic, right? But he was a good man and he knew his shit. And he's like, okay, you're in my band. I'm like, dude, I don't know anything about jazz. I have this rock guitar, blah, blah, blah. I played the Chicago Jazz Festival with his outfit. Can you imagine this little kid? Doesn't know any fucking standards, standing in the back playing to, I don't know how many thousands of people. And his outfit, they were fucking swinging hard, man. And I don't know what he saw in me, but we'd have these jam sessions at his place and he'd be playing and he just saw something in me. This guy played with Jacko, you know, not officially, but he used to play wow. with Jacko. And then he introduced me to Glenn Burris, who happens to be a very close friend of his. Glenn Burris was the sax player on Man With The Horn, one of Miles' records. So he's the sax player who wrote a lot of wow. the songs. And then he took me under his wing. They're both, these guys are our parents' age. You know, and Glenn was a recovering crack addict. Then he became, he found, you know, Christian mm. cleaned up and blah, blah, blah. And he's doing a lot of gigs. And Batume, still a crazy guy, whatever it is. So from these guys, I learned a lot about music. I have a VH, I need to find it. There was a VHS tape that we have a show together, all of us there. And it was great. I started picking up on standards and there was Pooch on, on keys. And anyway, that, that, that kind of went on. So... With, with with Glenn and Batume, they really li liked me as their son, which is great, you know. <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, and just discovered so much from, learned so much from them, you know. Plus, the scene was very vibey there. So there's a lot of great live venues. So, you know, one day you'd have Victor Wooten playing in the caboose. And First Avenue was a big thing in Minneapolis. So I, I need to mention this. This is very important because that is the hub of a lot of great music. So First Avenue, for the people who don't know, is Prince's Club. And I, you've seen it. You've seen that club. It's in his Purple Rain video. So he shot his Purple Rain video in that club, which is his. Now, First Avenue is a pinnacle of uh, the, or in the integral part of the music logistics of bands touring. So people tour from the east to the west, and they would come to the Midwest, and they'd always come into First Avenue and play a big show. So First Avenue had a massive stage, and they had another stage, a small live section on the top light. It was a big place, right? It was all black. And every great band has passed through First Avenue. Now, I got went to a lot of shows in First Avenue. And during this time, I did a record with a, a spoken word artist called Eric Bailey, which we put out a record called God's Pager, Heavy Water Blues. And Eric was working in a radio station in Minneapolis. So we became friends through another close friend of mine, who was a Native American photographer. He always had his camera with him. It was film at that time. He loved street shots and everything. Um, so 
Nyjah and Eric, we went into this together and we'd always go to whenever Eric had a show on the radio and we'd always go hang out there. So the nice thing is that this radio station was a Minneapolis radio station. You walk in and they have free tickets to a lot of shows, Ticketmaster, on the desk when you enter in. Obviously, you have to be invited. So um, we'd steal a lot of those tickets, <laughs> you know, go watch shows. <laughs> Not only that, if Eric ever watches, he's going to kick my ass. So Eric and I became really good friends and we still are. And he'd be doing his radio show and I'd be in the back where all the CD libraries are. And I would, out, there was thousands of them. Ornette Coleman I discovered because of there. I was like, what's this? Ornette Coleman, sweet. I'm taking this one, right? All of that. And I had an interview on the radio that time because during this time as well, during these years, I, I, was, I was in love with the recording and production aspect. Okay, as I was like playing with these bands like uh, Arcology, which was Eric's band, and then God's Pager, and then other outfits, we we did this thing. We'd go to these little studios, which are really nice. And I was like, wow, this is awesome. I want to do this too. So I bought a four-track Tascam cassette, a multi-track machine. And that's how I kind of learned how to record and stuff like that. But funny enough, I always wanted it because when I was young, I put two tape, two cassette machines next to each other. Mm. I'd record something on there and then play it back. And while uh -huh. it's playing back on this other recording machine, I'd lay something on top of it. And I thought that's how they recorded or whatever. I didn't really think about it that way, but that's how it kind of started. So I was always interested in that. And uh, yeah. Okay, so I mean, honestly, when you tell me about all of these stories of coming to America and being embraced and the kind of random meetings and the father kind of these father amazing musician father figures taking you under their wing and it just sounds like um like kind of the stories you read about about musicians going to america and being embraced by the music community out there it's... so were you in minneapolis the whole time until you came back to dubai or did you bounce uh, around well I, I i bounced around to chicago but very shortly because glenn glenn lived in chicago he okay. didn't live in minneapolis but he'd stay in minneapolis for a good like okay five six months so i'd go visit him there and uh, and chicago was another great place you know but there's something about minneapolis it reminded me of dubai in such a way i'll, I'll tell you how the multicultural huh. part of it The rest of this podcast is available exclusively to our Kickstarter backers. So I thought, is Dubai home for it's you? And... Do you love to buy?